This morning's reading is Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 19, which is page 1004 in your Bibles. Page 1004. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew to his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judah, Jerusalem, Idiomia, and the regions around the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowds, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. morning everyone let's uh, pray as we come to look at this passage together heavenly father may your word be our rule may your spirit be our teacher and may your greater glory be our supreme concern in Jesus name amen well it was 50 years uh, since the death of Winston Churchill on Friday just gone and uh, there's been a lot written about that in the papers and about him came across one article uh, entitled, When We Buried Winston Churchill, We Buried the British Nation. And in the article, the writer actually argued remarkably that Churchill didn't just lead Britain, but Churchill was Britain. In some way, he said, the nation was embodied in this one person. Well, when it comes to the Christian faith, what we find when we look at its founding documents, the Gospels is that it is all about one person, Jesus Christ. And so people have rightly said, Christianity is Christ. It's not so much a religion, but a person. 
That's what we see so clearly as we look at these early chapters of Mark's gospel. And it's why someone like C.S. Lewis was famous for saying that this character, Jesus, was, was such an extreme character that he was either a bad man, a madman, or who he claimed to be, the Son of God. A moderate opinion about him, like he was a great teacher, is just not on the table when you come and look at the verses like we've had read this morning. Well, our aim, again, as we look at Mark's Gospel, is to set our sights on Jesus Christ. And it is so helpful from time to time to go back again to these Gospels and have a real good look at the portrayal of Jesus by the eyewitnesses. And if you're here this morning with questions, doubts, or concerns about the Christian faith, there can be little better thing to do, I suggest, than to go back and look at this extraordinary account of Jesus' life. And what we see here with Jesus is an altogether more fascinating, more frightening and exhilarating person than the sanitised version we often are presented with. But it's also vital to keep looking at the Gospel, even if we feel we've already made our mind up to follow him. You know, hardly a week goes by, does it, when there's some more news of people rejecting or attacking uh, Christianity. Uh, Just in the last couple of weeks, two Christian schools in this country face possible closure. And it looks like it's really because they're just thoroughly Christian. Or another famous celebrity was interviewed this week in the papers, and I read that he described the, the God of the Bible as disgusting. And it's easy, isn't it, to feel doubt and question whether it's worth following Jesus when there's so much opposition uh, to him. Well, in these verses, Jesus himself faces strong opposition. And the way he deals with it, I suggest, uh, should give us cause for reassurance. And I hope we'll see that it is really worth following him. In fact, it's essential to follow him. Well, we're in Mark's Gospel, And just a quick reminder of the big picture of Mark. There are really uh, three questions, I think, that Mark uh, is about. Uh, Here they are. It's dealing with these three big things. Who is Jesus? It's predominantly the first half of the Gospel. Why did he come? That's predominantly in the second half. And what does it mean to follow him? Well, that's all the way uh, through. They're the three big uh, questions, I think, Uh, in Mark's Gospel. Well, we're on to chapter 3. And by this stage, Jesus has been proclaiming the good news of his kingdom. He's come. The king has come. And he's been doing this through his powerful teaching. Uh, He's been advancing his kingdom by driving out evil spirits and rescuing people from bondage. And he's been witnessing to his kingdom with his healings. And the message is that we are all to turn from living for ourselves, turn back to God, and put our trust in him. But although he's been doing these amazing things, there is stiff opposition, and it's been rising. I think we saw last time uh, that the opposition has been escalating from the Pharisees in particular. And today's passage reaches something of a climax. And the question is, how will Jesus respond to this opposition? Well, we've got three scenes in Mark's Gospel today to follow through, and I've given some titles Uh, to them, and um, here they are. Jesus judges old Israel, scene one. Jesus is truly Lord of Israel, and Jesus appoints a renewed Israel. We're going to follow those through in turn, 
Uh, a little bit longer on the first one. Jesus judges old Israel. As I was saying, this is something of a climax of the confrontation, the escalating confrontation with the religious leaders of the day. Let's set the scene. We're still in the town of Capernaum. It's a coastal town by the Sea of Galilee. It's Saturday, the Sabbath, and Jesus in the synagogue. And if you were here last time, you'll remember that there's a controversy raging about Jesus' practices uh, on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders are accusing him of breaking the Sabbath, which is a serious accusation, breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Well, who's present in the synagogue? Well, apart from Jesus, there's this man with a shriveled hand, some kind of deformity. We don't exactly know what it was. Maybe it was caused by something like polio or a stroke. And the Pharisees are there amongst the congregation, watching him closely. The tension was probably high. Maybe you could cut it with a knife. What is Jesus going to do with this man? Well, we've seen already, haven't we, that Jesus doesn't always do his miracles publicly or even straight away. But here, he calls the man right up into the middle. He's got a serious point to make. And you could just imagine the tension. There's Jesus. There's this man. Is he going to heal him on the Sabbath or not? All eyes are on him. Verse 3. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. Well, you might have expected Jesus would ask them, is it permissible to heal on the Sabbath or not? But that would have been an easy question for them to answer. There were lots of rabbinical codes that said it was not. So Jesus comes at it from a different angle. In fact, he really wants to get past the sort of externals and get to the heart of the matter. You know, what was the true heart of God's law? What did it mean? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Now, of course, as Jesus stands there and as this man stands there, everyone knows that he's capable of healing this man. And so is that a good thing to do? Should he do that? Should he do that act of kindness and heal him? Or... Should he not heal him? Which, by implication, Jesus' question implies that that would be evil, wouldn't it? Not to heal him. Well, how are they going to answer this question? If the Pharisees say it's lawful to do good, then standing right in front of them is a good act that Jesus can do. If they say that, they can't oppose the healing. But how can they now say do evil? Well, they can't do that, obviously. Uh, They can't therefore oppose their healing. So Jesus has asked them a very shrewd question uh, and caught them out. And they're unable to answer. In front of all the people, they are humiliated. Now Mark doesn't record here further arguments that Jesus used with the Pharisees on this question. In Matthew and Luke, the law indeed permitted the relieving of animal suffering on the Sabbath. And so Jesus challenges them. If you can relieve animal suffering, then why not human suffering. You see, these Pharisees are very religious, but their religion is exposed as flawed. Pharisaism worked around this principle of 
adding to the law of God in the scriptures. They added a whole series, lots and lots of other sort of stipulations and commands. And they, they thought it was a kind of insurance policy. If you kept all these sort of stricter commands that were a kind of hedge around the law, uh, then that would make sure absolutely that you wouldn't break the law in scripture. But it was a very serious mistake. By adding commands onto the scripture, you see the reality is you always take away from scripture. That's what always happens when we add and say there's another thing we need to do as, as well as what God says. And what happened in their case was they became focused on all these little rules and their performance of them. And in doing that, they misunderstood the heart and spirit of God's law. And in fact, it meant they neglected God's greater commands. And here Jesus exposes it. He exposes their evil. Their man-centered religious rules meant that they are actually doing evil on the Sabbath by opposing help for one who is in need. So can you see how kind of twisted it's all become? God's law was given for our good. The Sabbath was given for our good. We saw that last time. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And yet they've twisted it all for evil. It's all about bolstering their own self-righteous religion and their performance. But it's actually even worse than that, because did you notice, Jesus asked two pairs of questions. The second one was this, is it lawful to save life or to kill? Now what's Jesus getting at there? Because it doesn't appear, does it, that this man's condition is life-threatening. Well, in asking this second pair of questions, I think Jesus is not actually referring to the man, but referring to himself. On this day of rest, they are not just omitting to do something good, but they are actually doing evil, actively. They're watching, aren't they, to catch him out. And you can see where this leads to in the passage. Let's follow the rest of this incident through. Verse 5, he looked round at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus reacts strongly. He sees their willful, stubborn rejection of God. It's very much like uh, various incidents in the Old Testament, such as with Pharaoh. And so Jesus says uh, to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretches it out, and it's healed and restored completely. And so look at their response. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. They present themselves as righteous keepers of the law, and they're angry with Jesus because he breaks the Sabbath in their understanding. But they, on that very same Sabbath, are plotting to kill him. And it's pretty evil, really. The Pharisees, the supposed moral, upright, religious Israelites, get together with the Herodians, the secular irreligious Israelites who are in league with the Romans. The Pharisees are in league with them. What hypocrisy. And what a warning to us they are, aren't they? They're the highly respected people of their day. They are the faithful and zealous Jews. And yet, their way they've approached the scriptures is so fatally flawed that it's, it's led them down a religious route. That means they've become proud uh, and they look down on others. And now Jesus comes along and just by his life and teaching shows how false it is. He cuts away their legs from underneath them, doesn't he? 
and they're filled with rage as a result. They're wrong, and I suspect that deep down in their consciences, they know they're wrong, and so they're so angry. They're so angry that he's shown them up for what they are, man-centred, rather than truly God-centred. And they're so angry that they want to kill him. Uh, So angry that they'll join with their enemies uh, to try and kill the common enemy. And so by this simple question, uh, Jesus has exposed them. They were there coming to try and pass a test, see if Jesus would pass their test uh, to judge him. But actually, Jesus is passing judgment on them. And in fact, if you're familiar with the end of when God's law is given in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, uh, God presents a question to the people of Israel, rather like what Jesus does here. Will you choose life uh, and prosperity or death? Uh, And uh, Jesus is doing the same. He presents the Israelite leaders of his day with this question and shows uh, that they fail and he judges them. Well, after he judges them, he moves on. Verse 7. It's not a retreat uh, to flee for his life, uh, but he moves on to people who are more receptive. So that's scene two. Jesus is truly Lord of Israel. Well, the leaders have rejected him, but not the people, at least not yet. A large crowd from Galilee follows. And Jesus heads out of the city, presumably to a more remote spot along the river, and it's here uh, that many, many more people come to join him. Verse 8, when they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. So I've got a map, hopefully, uh, to show you just where these places all are. So you've got the south, Idumea, the name comes from Edom, uh, Edomites from the Old Testament. You've got the regions east of the Jordan. Uh, You've got Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, Galilee, and then you've got Tyre and Sidon just a little bit further up, up there. So it's, it's a really wide geographical uh, region. It covers, in fact, all of the kingdom of Israel at its greatest extent in the Old Testament. And even though in Jesus' days there were many Gentiles living in the outer areas, I think Mark is wanting to point out to us that Jesus truly is Lord of all Israel. John the Baptist had people from Jerusalem and Judea come out to him, but Jesus is shown to be a far more powerful figure. All of Israel is out uh, gathered to him. And there are so many, aren't there, trying to get to him that it's actually almost like a dangerous situation for Jesus. It's a bit like when a modern celebrity walks out in the public and everyone is crowding and pressing in uh, against them. And Jesus has to get into a boat, uh, as he often does, to address the crowd. But he's not just Lord over all the humans there. Verse 11, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave strict orders not to tell who he was. You are the son of God. It will take until the end of the gospel in the centurion before any human being says that of Jesus. But according to his plan, uh, he is not going to reveal himself instantly, fully. He's revealing himself gradually in his own way. And this way that the spirits respond is just another piece of evidence of his power. They are forced to fall down before him and commanded to be quiet. 
it is telling us, isn't it, that Jesus really is Lord. His power is like that of the Lord God of the Old Testament. All other spiritual beings are clearly inferior and in subservience to him. But though the crowds are following, it seems that they're primarily attracted to his miracles more than, any, more than anything else. And so it's from the midst of the crowds, from the midst of old Israel, Jesus calls out a new group. Jesus appoints renewed Israel. It's the last section, 13 down to 19. Jesus has passed judgment. He's shown that he's really Lord. And so now he calls out a new Israel. This section from verse 13 is full of kind of Old Testament uh, meanings. Jesus goes up onto a mountain. That's what happened at special moments of God interacting with his people. Think of Moses on Mount Sinai. Think of when the elders of Israel were called up from the crowds uh, to meet God uh, on the mountain. Or think of Elijah on the mountain in his encounter with the Lord. Or think later of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, Jesus goes up and calls out from his followers 12. He calls those he desired, and they came. They obeyed his calling. And the number 12 is surely very significant. 12 was the number of the tribes of Israel, uh, the number of the sons of Jacob. And you see, what Jesus is therefore doing is having judged the old, is now reforming, reconstituting Israel around himself. He's acting just like the Lord did in the Old Testament. Of course, it's striking, isn't it, that he is not one of the twelve. He calls them and he is over them. And elsewhere we read that Jesus says these twelve are going to sit in judgment over the twelve tribes of Israel. And if you remember when we did Revelation last term, fast forward to the very end, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, has 12 gates for the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles. So these 12 are the foundation of the renewed people of Israel and all of God's people uh, who will join them from all nations in the days to come. Now it is interesting, isn't it, in the first week of a a woman bishop in this country uh, to reflect on the fact that Jesus chooses 12 men to be the founding leaders of his people. Now this, of course, isn't a primary passage to go to, to consider whether it was right or not to consecrate Libby Lane, but it's clearly of significance, isn't it, uh, that these 12 men, and 12 men who have a unique role, not just in their own culture, not just in their own day, uh, but it's there right at the end of the Bible, in the world uh, to come, the foundation of all of God's people. And so what is uh, their role? Well, have a look at verse 14. They are to be with him. Their focus of life now is to spend time with him. In fact, they're going to spend three years travelling around, living closely with him. But it's not that they're going to stay there. Uh, They are going to be trained up and sent out to further his work by doing the same things that he has been doing, to preach the word uh, and to heal Uh, and to drive out demons. The word apostle uh, literally means someone who's been sent. They go out to preach the good news of Jesus, and they have the power to drive out demons. The two of those, of course, go together. 
The message has the power to save people and bring them to Christ. And the message preached, as the message is preached, people are delivered from the powers of evil. So the apostles are extending Jesus' own kingdom building work. That's their role. They are founding the new people of God. Peter, James and John are mentioned. And their nicknames, if I can call them that, are given. Uh, They are the three inner core. They're the ones that are mentioned time and again in the Gospels. The rest of the twelve, in fact, most of them we don't know very much about. And the surnames that some of them get given are actually only given to distinguish them from others who've got the same name. So in and of themselves, uh, who they are, uh, Mark doesn't think is that important for us to know. The most important thing is that they are twelve. They are the new Israel. But even as we look forward with hope, there's a reminder, isn't there, just at the end there, with Judas Iscariot, that Jesus' death is going to be necessary to found the new people. Well, scene one, Jesus judges old Israel. Scene two, Jesus is truly Lord of Israel. And scene three, Jesus appoints renewed Israel. Three concluding uh, remarks to make from this passage. First, an assurance. Opposition can't thwart God and his plans. It may be that we do sometimes feel really concerned about uh, some of the things that are going on in the West or beyond, but I think a passage like this should help us to be assured. The rejection of Jesus by old Israel couldn't stop his plans at all. In fact, he was totally in charge of the incident, wasn't he? The rejection of Jesus by the likes of school inspectors or ISIL or trendy celebrities today, cannot remotely derail his plans. Indeed, he is Lord over all of their actions. And so a passage like this should give us assurance. But also, there's a warning, isn't there? Jesus truly is Lord. Do you see his matchless power in these three scenes? C.S. Lewis was really quite correct, wasn't he, to say that he's no simple minor religious teacher or meek and mild faith healer. He's the Lord God himself, the eternal son of the Father. No one else can do the things that he does here like this. He is the one with real authority. And in fact, he's the one who defines who God's people are. It's only in relation to him that you're in the people of God. And so I take it there's a warning to us here, isn't there? A warning of rejecting him, a warning of rejecting him and his power because he is the one uh, who is able to save and bring us into his people. And then finally, I, I take a great assurance about what it means to be one of his people. What a blessing it is to be with him. Think of the apostles. It's a lovely picture, isn't it, about what it means to be one of Jesus' people. Now, of course, the apostles had a unique ministry Uh, And we are not all given the same commission as they were. And yet, all disciples are called to be with him. uh, And all disciples are sent out to proclaim his kingdom. What we have here is is not a religion. It's a relationship with him. Christianity is Christ. And once in this relationship, once we enjoy being with him, knowing him as our Lord and Saviour, the best relationship that there is, then we too are sent out to serve him 
and to make him known. Well, I'm going to pray that we will be true disciples like that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these amazing chapters of Mark. As we look at them together in these next few weeks, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on the Lord Jesus and that you would help us to see who he really is and that we would respond in the way that we are called to do so, that we may be his true disciples and that we may be used by you to call others to him. In his name we pray. Amen.